You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. European leaders continue to grapple with the realities of Brexit, Donald Trump's election, and other challenges to the current international order. In today's episode, Finland's former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb discusses whether and how Europe can take the lead in a new world of nationalism. FSI Director Michael McFall introduces him. Delighted to have Alexander Stubb with us today from Finland. He served as Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade and Europe Minister of Finland. Um, which means there's no more jobs for you left in nope. Finland, right? Okay. Um, but uh, he also served, he uh, 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 continues to serve in the parliament. Uh, he called it um, uh, a sabbatical year compared to being a minister at dinner the other night. Um, what you may not know, and actually I didn't know until just this morning, is that he's also an academic with a PhD from the LSE. He's uh, published 14 books and dozens of academic articles. Um, not many people in this room probably have published 14 books, uh, Alex. Um, and he continues to write quite a bit. He just finished a new book coming out in Finland, and he writes a column for the Financial Times. You can see him there fairly regularly. Uh, today, he's going to speak about life after Trump and Brexit. Will Europe be able to take the lead? It's really great that we have former Prime Minister Alex Stubb today. Thank you, Michael, for those kind words. And uh, I guess when I'm in Finland, uh, I quite often quote Henry Kissinger, because once he was introduced at a seminar with splendid words and CVs and things like that, and he he said that, uh, well, I might not, not need an introduction, but it sure is nice to listen to them. So very kind, and I, I do appreciate also uh, the invitation from Stanford to be here for a few days. It, it does take me back to my years as an undergrad at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, the campus is equal, so, you know, I'm finished by birth and southern by the grace of God. And, uh, but I'll, I'll try to hold back my southern accent today. I'm married to a Brit nowadays, so I've toned down. So our uh, real American accent obviously comes from President Thomas Ilves, who's got a good New Jersey type of a push. I, I can't even imitate it. Um, it's wonderful to be here today, and I think we have a total of an hour and a half uh, together. And uh, I'll try to utter a few words to kick off, perhaps half an hour, uh, a little bit more. And then we'll open the floor for questions and, and answers. And um, I'll say a couple of words by way of introduction, and then I will make three points and finally try to conclude. And the three points that I will make today is the first one is to outline three key dates, which I believe that we need to look at uh, today. The second one is to outline two key events, namely Brexit and the election of Donald Trump which I think we need to look at. And then finally, my third point uh, is to try to figure out who is going to fill the possible power vacuum that's left by the United States. And my argument is that it's not going to be simple, and it's not necessarily going to be uh, Europe, but it might be partially. So my three points are three key dates, two key events, and then uh, one or more 
countries filling the power vacuum uh, from the states. By way of introduction, um, I think one of the problems that we quite often have in, in, in analyzing international relations or politics is that we make very hasty conclusions. You know, I'm an IR buff, uh, I'm a uh, liberal internationalist, uh, I read the Financial Times, uh, I read the New York Times, I live in that global bubble. And when I see events unfolding in the world, my worldview is skewed very much uh, from what I see uh, in the Anglo-Saxon media. Uh, and I quite rarely stop to think things over and, and, and really reflect on what is happening. And especially in today's world of information flow, which is obviously constant and fast, um, it's very difficult to, to uh, really uh, understand what is going on. And we have a tendency to draw hasty conclusions. So my first message today, by way of introduction, is that no matter what happens in the world, I think it's important to remain cool, calm, and collected. We also have a tendency quite often to exaggerate the era in which we live as the most historic, the most important. Uh, you know, we saw the French elections this weekend. Many said the most historic and most important election. Well, I, I think every election, to be honest, uh, is important. Now, having said that, I don't deny the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. Uh, and when there's a lot of stuff going on, that's usually an indication that there is some form of change, disruption, or instability in the world. And my key argument today would be to say that there is potentially quite a big disruption going on. And here's how I argue it. So my first point today is, is three key dates that I firmly believe that we as international relations specialists, political scientists, uh, should look at when we try to understand the world. Uh, the first date is 1945, and for, uh, I would argue, three obvious reasons. One is uh, it marked the end uh, of World War II. Two, it marked the beginning of the international institutional structure that we have today. Uh, you could see the embryo of the Euro European Union, NATO, uh, the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, later on Bretton Woods system, etc., etc., uh, that was founded uh, around those dates. And the third reason is obviously that's when the world became truly bipolar, where you had the Soviet Union and its allies, either willing or not willing, and the United States uh, and its allies, uh, mostly uh, willing. Uh, so on one hand, you had the communist regimes, authoritarian regimes, uh, and uh, planned economies. And on the other hand, obviously, you had freedom, liberal democracy, uh, and capitalism, for lack of a, a better term. Uh, and this was the world that some people uh, in this room grew up in, and some people have analyzed throughout their lives. Now, the second date that I would argue we should keep in mind is, is 1989. And again, there the reason is rather obvious. That's the year. Sylvie, did you find my phone? Yes, I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> life is not easy without an iPhone. As, as a Finn, I should say, uh, life was a lot easier with a Nokia. But, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, yeah, but actually, we're probably on a Nokia network here. So that's at least, you know, you never know. Uh, 
in any case, uh, 1989, for obvious reasons, the Berlin Wall comes down. Um, for me as a political scientist, it was a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I, I, I had gone to Furman because I had a little golf scholarship and I wanted to become an economist. Well, I played with Phil Mickelson in the tournament and noticed I'm not going to become a golfer. Uh, and economics wasn't my thing. And suddenly the Berlin Wall comes down and I go to classes at Furman on international relations and the EU. And life is exciting. The Soviet Union collapses uh, in 1991. East meets West. There are people who were making that transition, uh, like Thomas Ilves, by his activist action, if you will, a promoter for the independence uh, of the Baltic states and more specifically of Estonia as an advocate of, of liberal democracy, you know, forcing that change, if you will. It's an era of hope. Fukuyama, who I will meet tomorrow, uh, writes about the end of history and says that all 200 nation states in this world become, will become liberal democracies and social market economies. Well, approximately 100 of them uh, have done so, so we still have quite a while to go. But the bottom line is that 1989, for me at least, symbolizes an era of hope. It also does two additional things. One, it ends the bilateral world or bipolar world that we were used to because the West, liberal democracy, market economy and globalization, won the Cold War hands down. Of course, with the help of uh, security structures uh, such as NATO. But at the end of the day, it was a societal model that won the day. And the second one was that, yes, we had the international institutions, but at the same time, we started to integrate further and deeper. The world became much smaller. And I've grown up in that era. I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm at the tender age of 49. But when I was studying, that was 1989. And, and throughout my life, I've, I've lived in a life, both as a civil servant, an academic, and a politician, which has in many ways been very hopeful. We've had almost constant economic growth. We've had tremendous technological development. A small country like mine, Finland, from 1991 to 2007, due to globalization, our GDP per capita grew $1,500 per annum. Can you imagine that? $1,500 per year per capita. That's tremendous growth. You know, Finland opened up, became a member of the EU, believed in free markets, and obviously continued also to support its welfare state. So the bottom line is, I've grown up in that era, and it's always been good. And I, much like many others, believe that the best form of governance is based on three things. One is liberal democracy, two is a social market economy, and three, that leans on globalization. And this was the world that we grew up. Then comes the third date that I want all of us to, to remember and that we have touched upon many times uh, during these past few days here, and that's 2016. Now again, I warned in the beginning of drawing quick conclusions. Yes, when Brexit happened, midsummer uh, last year, uh, we were basically in tears in Europe. We were frustrated. We were annoyed. We couldn't believe that this happened. And I was the only pro-European minister who actually 
said publicly when David Cameron announced his decision to have a referendum on EU membership that this is actually a good thing. Because I had always felt that Britain was a reluctant bride. And my wife is British, so I can say that, you know. So, so, so Britain was a reluctant bride and sort of not always sure that, I, do I belong here or, or not? And I felt, you know, it was time to settle it once and for all. And I always felt that, you know, a lot of uh, the rational school of thought, and our great philosophers come from Anglo-Saxon or British traditions, Brits are sensible people. Of course they're going to vote uh, to remain. Little did I know. And of course, the second reason for choosing 2016 is, is, is the election of Donald Trump uh, here uh, in the United States. And that was, I would argue, uh, an equal shock to the liberal internationalist system. Uh, a lot of these phenomenon around both of these tremendous elections, one of them is permanent, Brexit, the other one is not permanent, the election of the US president, uh, I think obviously symbolize an anti-globalist movement. It is not anymore about left or right. It's more about national, international or local versus global. We'll talk about a lot of the populist elements in it, but this was a shocker to the system. And I would argue that it weakened the West. It weakened the West in many ways. It weakened the European Union, and I'll get back to this in a second, and I would argue that it also weakened the United States. But the jury is still out and we should not be drawing uh, hasty conclusions. So my three points on these three key dates is that uh, it has changed the liberal world order, it has changed the future of the European Union, and finally it will have issues in international relations and, and, and security. My second point today then are these two key events from, from 2016. And I'll take Brexit first. Uh, the first one, the first observation I have on, on Brexit is that no matter how we look at it, it, it is of historic significance. You know, no member state has ever left the European Union since it was founded through the coal and steel community in 1952. Yes, Greenland, but that's, you know, few hundred thousand people and a lot of fish, right? So it's not, you know, it's, it's not going to shake the world, if you will. And in any case, that was an autonomous part of Denmark, not a sovereign nation state leaving uh, the European Union. Uh, not only that, this was a big state. Not only that, it was a state that drew economic reform, uh, the internal market and, and, and free trade. Uh, so in many ways, a, a liberal country leaving the European Union. So the historic significance is, is, is definitely uh, big. The general significance of Brexit is, unfortunately, and, and here is Thomas Nosis, I'm an eternal optimist, but I, I think it's a complete lose-lose proposition. No one, apart from a few law firms, is going to win or gain uh, on Brexit. I mean, hands down, we're all going to lose in this big, grand uh, bargain. It will make Europe weaker politically, it will make Europe weaker in terms of security. It will make Europe weaker in terms of portraying to be a global power. And it will certainly make the United Kingdom weaker. Even though it's a P5 member uh, of the Permanent Security Council uh, in uh, the UN, even though it's a member of NATO, British grandeur was very much reflected and its influence was reflected through uh, the European Union, not so much uh, as um, a nation state called 
Great Britain. Uh, do not underestimate the complexity of Brexit. It's very difficult to negotiate yourself into the European Union, but it is even more difficult to negotiate yourself out. Yes, at the end of the day, it's simple. You only need two things. You need to foot the bill and you need to find a date. But then you add on to that that the EU has about 12,000 pieces of legislation, directives and, and regulations. Uh, and you have to put that into your national law. Then you put into the equation that you have a lot of prior engagements and commitments. I'll take, given that we are in university, just a simple example. 60% um, of the funding of British universities come from the European Union. And as of the 1st of April 2019, when Britain leaves the EU, if there are no transition periods, that's it. So can you imagine a joint project between, say, the University of Helsinki or Aalto University, University of Bocconi in Italy, and then Oxford, which has been funded for, say, 30 million euros, 10, 10, and 10. The minute Brexit happens, goodbye Oxford. That's just one small example. And if you think about the standards that Britain has to abide by in terms of mobile phones, iPads, pens, whatever, They've all been done together, but Britain will not have a say on those anymore. So it will be extremely complex on many accounts. Number one, how much will it cost? Number two, who will have jurisdiction in uh, dispute issues? Uh, number three, how do you deal with the approximately three million Europeans who live in Britain and one million Brits who live uh, in Europe? How about their rights? Uh, Number four, um, how do you deal with security matters? And number five, what kind of a future relationship with, will Britain have with the EU? And, you know, I'm an EU nerd. I've been involved in negotiating the Amsterdam Treaty, the Nice Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty, the Constitutional Convention. But, I mean, the complexity of this just, just goes beyond anything that I, that I have seen. And the unfortunate thing, of course, is that the British administration will be preoccupied with this for the next two years. How do you reform your country when you're trying to negotiate yourself out of something? It goes beyond me. But that's a choice that the British people made, and, and I would argue that there's no turning back, unfortunately. The second key event was obviously the election of Donald Trump. And here, to be honest, you, know, you guys are better specialists than, than I am. And I've been on a steep learning curve uh, here. But the one thing and value added that I can perhaps give you is, is the perspective that was, was taken uh, in, in Europe. I think a lot of us Europeans were probably as shocked uh, as many of the people in this room with uh, the election. It was a shock in many ways. Uh, on one hand, uh, it was a vote against the liberal international order. Uh, on the other hand, it was a vote uh, against uh, perhaps a little bit more traditional uh, candidates, uh, and to a certain extent it was a vote against uh, stability. But you know what? That's really what democracy is all about. So there are a lot of people who felt that, you know, I don't like Brexit, I don't like Trump, therefore I don't like democracy. I, you know, I don't, I don't buy that argument. The element of democracy that makes it so great is that one, it throws surprises at you, 
And two, you can throw out the guys that are governing in the next elections. That's what it's all about. Now, once we got over the initial shock and the few early executive orders that we saw, a lot of people started to think, well, you know what? And I think Condi would argue this as well. The founding fathers were pretty smart. The checks and balances that they have put on executive power in the United States go beyond anything that we have uh, witnessed before. And that's why I think that, again, no matter what you think of Donald Trump as a European or as, a, as an American, you need to look at the resilience of the institutions that you have created. Few people remember that there was a vote uh, battle and recount in Florida when uh, George W. and uh, Al Gore were erected. What did the American system show then? It showed resilience and institutional strength. The country did not go into chaos. And I think the institutional structure that you have uh, on the executive is strong as well. Now, there are a few things that makes me worried or at least reflect about the current Trump administration. Number one is that it probably brings more instability to foreign policy than we have seen uh, in the past few decades uh, from a US administration. Because usually in the US, you know, you change presidents quite often, I'm exaggerating, every eight years, you know, Democrat comes in, every eight years a Republican comes in, uh, more or less. And you usually know what that person brings in with it. You, know, you knew what George Bush was pushing. You knew what Bill Clinton was doing. You knew what George W. did. You knew what Obama did. You knew what American foreign policy was about. But now there's a feeling of, well, we're not 100% sure. You know, we don't know. It's a little bit sort of knee-jerk reaction. At least that's the feeling. Again, then you can make an argument that the people around President Trump, you know, whether it's Tillerson, McMaster, or, or, or uh, Mattis, uh, are seasoned foreign policy experts. Yeah, that's true. So that might bring stability. Uh, but in this line, there seems to be a discrepancy between rhetoric and reality. If you look at the tweets of President Trump and compare that to foreign policy action, they don't always you know, meet. So an element of, of uh, instability. The second thing I find a little bit worrying, and not a little even, is, is, is the protectionist language. You know, this is a country, after all, that has been built in many ways, not only on uh, labor and, 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 and free uh, enterprise here uh, on the continent proper, but also on, on free trade. Uh, and when I start hearing protectionist rhetoric in today's world, um, I, I, I find that quite disturbing because I firmly believe in free trade and especially with technological development in today's world. I mean, if you start building walls, putting on tariffs, etc., I, I, I don't think you're going to be well off. Now, the jury is out. Will the Trump administration uh, wake up to this and, 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 and reverse tack? Uh, I don't know. And the third one, obviously, which has made us wonder a little bit is foreign policy. The first statements on NATO. Uh, first statements on Russia and on Putin, uh, first statements on China. Uh, you know, they were not what we would call traditional uh, foreign policy statements. But then again, you know, we've seen action in, in Syria. Uh, we've seen action in Afghanistan. 
we've seen reversal of uh, some of the foreign policy rhetoric. So again, the jury is out. But I do think that 2016 and these two events, you know, they are as significant as 1989. And now the question is, which way does it turn? You know, does it turn to the illiberal line, less internationalist line, or will it follow suit from 1989? And I don't have an answer for that. But if we look at some of the elections post-Trump and post-Brexit, and if we look at some of the opinion polls in Europe about the European Union post-Brexit and post-Trump, certainly it seems to be a bit of a retraction and, and, and comeback for liberal internationalists. Elections in Austria on the president were between a green candidate uh, and a right-wing populist. The green candidate won. The Dutch elections, many predicted that Gerd Wilders and the Freedom Party would do well. Well, they didn't. Uh, and now, of course, the French elections. Uh, and Touchwood, or as you say in the US, knock on wood. Um, uh, I don't know how it's going to go, but at least the first round of voting uh, from a liberal internationalist perspective seemed good. My final and third point today before we go into Q&A is, is, is will we then have one or many entities or countries filling the power vacuum that is potentially left by the United States. Now I'll start with a hypothesis which can be provocative, you know, you can challenge it or not. But I would argue that a country or a president that wants to build walls, say no to immigration, is recalcitrant about international institutions and international involvements is anti-immigration, puts America first and is protectionist, cannot lead the world. You cannot be the undisputed superpower of the world if you say no to the world. You can only lead the world by engagement. And that's what makes, I think, the current situation with President Trump interesting. Now, if the hypothesis is that the United States will not continue to be the only superpower of the world and we will not have a unipolar world, what next? I would argue, and I'll just sketch this out, and sharks can attack this uh, after I've finished. I would argue that in trade, especially free trade and globalization, that power vacuum will be filled by China, which I find paradoxical that a communist state becomes a champion of free trade and globalization. But hey, that's the world that we live in. Uh, and that will be interesting to see. Now, whether this is rhetoric or reality, I don't know. Um, I have argued before that uh, for China, Europe is the new Africa. And by that I mean to say that what China did to Africa in terms of natural resources and mining and acquisitions, etc., they're doing now in Europe in purchasing companies, IPR, information technology, etc., etc. And the Europeans, I'm a, I like free trade, so I don't have a problem with this. Uh, but the Europeans have to be a little bit careful because if the Chinese are acquiring um, companies such as Supercell, Finnish company that created Clash of Clans and Clash Royale. Uh, 
if they are sold to, super, uh, to, to Tencent in China, that's fine. Clash of Clans is strategic, but its strategic significance in world politics is minimal. But if they start purchasing Aextron, which has a military uh, implication to it, then things become a little bit more complicated. But first argument is that China will fill that space. If the Trump administration says no to TIP, if it says no to free trade in general, and if it still makes a claim that the way to grow the American economy is through protectionism, then someone will take the role that the US used to have. Uh, the second power vacuum will, I think, be filled by two countries, the US and Russia, and that is the military power vacuum. Russia, and Thomas Ilves can fill me in on this, uh, in 2008 showed that its military capacity was mediocre in the war in Georgia. And ever since, they have been constantly building up and spending more. And now they have strengthened their capacity. U.S. military capacity won't go anywhere. You know, the last thing the Trump administration is going to do is to start saying, well, the world looks lovey-dovey and good, no problems, we're going to start cut cutting military expansion. No, it's, it's not going to happen. The third power vacuum is the one on values. And I, I find this very important. And you can call me naive or overly optimistic or, or, or whatever. But I find it very difficult to believe that uh, President Donald Trump could be the leader of the free world or, or, or a leader in, in value questions. So someone needs to take that over. And I would argue in terms of personalities, the last woman standing is, is Angela Merkel. And in many ways, she has become the leader of the free world when it comes to, to values. And I, I find this very important to say because you know, it's not that easy always to defend liberal values. And I, I use this in a broad context in the world right now. To defend, for instance, uh, immigration and asylum seekers. Uh, to f defend uh, liberal democracy, to defend free movement inside uh, the European Union. It's not an easy feat to do because there seems to be an onslaught of more perhaps traditional conservative values uh, coming along. So I would argue that Europe should do that. But Europe can only do it if the elections go right. So if Europe wants to lead in terms of values, and Le Pen were to win in, in 11 days. I, I don't think it's going to work. But if Macron wins, then you might see once again a Franco-German axis uh, with Angela Merkel and, and Emmanuel Macron doing that value leadership. I actually also think that the EU can lead on, on trade and on trade agreements. Uh, multilateral trade is great, but uh, we have seen that the WTO and the Doha round are not necessarily working, so we're seeing a lot more bilateral trade agreements. Uh, and obviously the European Union is forging many of them. Uh, and here's just a reminder to perhaps uh, some people who want to cut corners. The EU, the European Commission, has exclusive competence on trade. So when I was trade minister, it was all nice. But I wasn't negotiating trade agreements for Finland. It was Commissioner Karel de Gucht. We came together with 28 member states, gave him a negotiating mandate, and he was the one who did the negotiation. So you cannot do bilateral trade deals with European countries. And that actually what puts Britain in quite an awkward uh, position uh, as, as, as well. Uh, 
So my argument is that China will take the lead on, on free trade and globalization, Russia and the US on military, uh, and the EU on values and perhaps on, on, on trade agreements. Uh, but right now my feeling is that the system is actually quite messy and we don't know exactly where it's going to settle. By way of conclusion, um, I'll just say a couple of words on, on the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, in other words, digitalization, um, 3D printing, information, uh, internet of things, uh, artificial intelligence and, and robotization. Um, I think that international relations and politicians do not understand what is going on in Silicon Valley or the so-called uh, IT world. My children who are 13 and 15, um, they don't remember the time before smartphones. Their children will never go to school with a vehicle that has uh, uh, a driver. Uh, they will probably be uh, diagnosed better by artificial intelligence uh, uh, and information technology than a doctor does. Uh, we're facing enormous questions, I would argue, uh, basically on the future of Homo sapiens and, and mankind. And politicians are tinkering with legislation, which is almost Neanderthal, uh, no pun intended. But the bottom line is that, that this is something that we all need to look at. So if I was to give a piece of advice to my ex-colleagues, European leaders today, it would be to say, try to take a lead on information technology and the fourth industrial revolution. Now, Thomas would argue, and I think he is correct, that we did well in telecommunications in the 1990s in Europe when we set one standard, but we have left, been left awfully behind the United States when it comes to uh, the digital uh, market, because we have had so many different uh, vested interest to, to protect. And the big question is, can we overcome this uh, and take a lead, uh, perhaps together with the United States in this field? And here we come back to values. No matter how artificial intelligence develops, I would much rather be at a stage uh, in the evolution of mankind that good liberal values were the ones who finally plugged in the algorithms uh, into the neck of a human being when he or she becomes a hybrid rather than a bad one. So I'll leave you on that positive, positive note. Uh, and having argued uh, today uh, in my 35-40 uh, uh, minutes that the three key dates that I think have defined the international order that we have lived in. They're 1945, 1989, and 2016. That there are two key events that have defined 2016, uh, namely Brexit and Trump, and the jury is out uh, on both of them. Uh, and then three, that the international order moving from a bipolar world to a unipolar world is now becoming multipolar, but we don't exactly know who is going to be filling the power vacuums that seem to be emerging anywhere. So my message to a student at Stanford in um, 2017 would be to say that you are living in 
as exciting of times that I lived in in 1989 at Furman University. So congrats for being here. Thanks. <laughs> So uh, rather than me awkwardly standing here, uh, I think I'm just going to let you call on people and take questions. Okay. Uh, my uh, ask of you, can you please uh, identify yourself to our guest and then ask your question with the microphone, okay? Uh, one other caveat, uh, we have to end at 1.20 today because there are two Perfect. dozen students, including me, that have to be at class at 1.30 on the other side. So. Uh, let's do it that way, and since I'm standing here, I want to ask the first question, um, and then I'll sit down and shut up. So, sometimes it appears to me that the, the illiberals in Europe, and even some of their friends in other parts of the world, uh, are sometimes coordinating, they're sometimes organized, they even time, at times give money to each other, if you think about the Russian bank and Japan. Uh, most certainly, uh, Le Pen went and had a nice mm -hmm. meeting with uh, President Putin. Uh, are the liberal internationals, are you guys organized? Do you have mm -hmm. your clubs, your secret clubs? You, do you share ideas? And if you're not, are they, are they just the standard ones, like you know, the World Economic Forum? Mm -hmm. Or do you think, should there be more to that, the connective mm -hmm. tissue between ideologically people that are close to you, and, uh, irrespective if they're European, American, Chinese, or, or African? Yeah, no, thanks, Mike, good question. I mean, two answers to it. First, the, the, the conservative gang or the illiberal gang. I actually think that from a foreign and security political perspective, uh, Russia and especially uh, President Putin uh, took a strategic decision sometime around 2011, 2012. Uh, and probably from his perspective, a right one. He sort of looked around and said, well, listen, European or Western liberal values are not my thing. Um, and I think that there are a lot of Westerners and Europeans that are sick and tired of these liberal values. Whether it's gay rights, um, whether it's immigration, uh, whether it's tolerance, whether it's equality, people want a little bit more order and security. And this whole democratic society, as a matter of fact, it's pretty messy and people want to see control and leadership. And quite systematically started to, through parties or, or through, as we heard yesterday from Thomas, uh, social media and, and other ways, to, to sort of push this agenda. So you're right, they, they have sort of come together. Now my argument would be that, you know, the, the Davos gang, and I, I belong to the Davos gang. I'm actually going to Milken, so let's call it the Milken gang, right? So the Milken gang and the Davos gang, you know, we've always been around. We, we love our little stories. We read the same newspapers and we have the same analysis. And we believe that democracy and freedom is a great thing and, you know, everyone will adjust at the end of the day. So let's make the world like California, right? <laughs> I mean, that's been the, yeah. And, 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 you know, we've been kind of comfortable with it, but it's been tinkering around. Now, we woke up and started to smell the coffee in 2016 with Brexit and with Trump. That's when people said, whoa, this is not a foregone conclusion. You know, we need to start defending these values because we weren't. Some people left, felt left out because of globalization. One of the best comments that I heard was in a town hall debate, Intelligence Square, BBC World. Uh, I was there defending Remainers, and, and then there were Brexiteers. And one of the defenders of Remainers, a uh, British MP, I remember the name, said, 
Why would we leave the why would the United Kingdom leave the EU? Look, our GDP has grown over X amount of years. And someone shouted from the audience, "Yeah, mate, perhaps your GDP, but not mine." So we've we've sort of assumed that because we are international liberals and doing well, everyone else is. And I don't think we have. And 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 this is where we need to start to come together. But how then to do this in an organized fashion, I don't know. I'll finish my answer by saying that when you defend liberal values, you also take big hits. I mean, the amount of trolling and crap that you get just for putting into Twitter the word solidarity or multiculturalism or, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you take it, you take it, and many others as well. So, you know, it takes courage then to defend the liberal values because the army on the other side is, is so strong. Yeah, Ken. Okay. Uh, my name is Ken Chivi, and I'm a, a senior fellow at the Freeman Smokley Institute. So one of the things I'd like to hear more about is, is, is a follow-up uh, to Mike's question, but um, in a specific arena. What, what I'm interested in is, is there's, there's two main stories about the consequences of Brexit for the EU. One is, is that you have your, as you put it, reluctant bride has now decided to um, exit the, the community, and now it's an opportunity for the remaining uh, countries to uh, deepen their levels of integration, how, how the institution works, and it can be become, become perhaps uh, more effective or at least um, uh, very different than it is mm -hmm. right now. A, an alternative is, is, no, the very things that led to Brexit in the first place um, are also present throughout Europe, mm. the, the illiberal... Uh, the strength of illiberal political parties and, and political leaders, and they have a very anti-EU uh, perspective and, and don't want this to happen. And so I guess my question is, is post-Brexit, what are your expectations for uh, your, the European Union going forward? Mm. Uh, it's a good question, it's a big question, and I'll try to be short. The first observation is that the EU is eternal crisis management. So you go from one crisis to another. Just give an example, Cold War ends, what do we do with enlargement? It feels like a crisis in the 1990s. In 2000 onwards, we tinker with institutions because we feel that they don't have the absorption capacity. Then comes the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, leads to sovereign debt crisis, subprime crisis, euro crisis, and the rest of it. Then suddenly, 2014, 2015, we get the asylum crisis. Why do I say this? I say because the EU usually develops through a crisis. And the process of integration is such that integration in one area leads to pressure to integrate in another. So you go from what? Customs union to internal market to common currency to so on and so forth. Um, but the problem is that, that it's also a compromise machine. So it develops in three stages. Stage number one is the crisis. Stage number two is chaos, and stage number three is suboptimal solution. <laughs> and you know, that's what we've been doing throughout. Now, Brexit is a crisis, and the EU certainly is trying to figure out, you know, what the heck does this mean at the end of the day. The Commission has put out a paper, five options. Uh, we went through them in Christoph's uh, class about how the EU should develop. 
but they're only sort of small blueprints. And, and, and what we're missing sort of in my mind from the EU side is sort of the heart and the soul, the big vision of the founding fathers. Um, and and it, it is much more sort of step by step. What will the EU do? Uh, it will do legislate a little bit less, it will do smarter, it will do better, it will de integrate deeper in areas where it needs to do and then perhaps a little bit less where it doesn't. If you ask the general public where should the EU be active, they'll probably say security, the fight against terrorism, and finding a solution to the asylum crisis. But you see, the EU is never going to become popular. It's a little bit like Washington, you know? And, and then you have, obviously, the tension between domestic politicians and, and Brussels. So a prime minister, uh, I would never do that, and Thomas never did this as a president either, uh, but normally they say that everything that is bad is because of Brussels and everything that's good is thanks to me. Uh, and, and when you throw that rhetoric for 40 years like they did in the UK, that's when you get Brexit. So, you know, we're not going to see a mega leap forward in European integration and we're not going to see the dismantling of the EU. We are going to see probably pretty much of the same old. Thomas. Well, I'd say it's worse. <laughs> Uh, he's, the, he's the pessimist, I'm the optimist. Always. <laughs> uh, usually it's the other way around. But. No, I, worse, well, very different. I mean, I would say first, the first thing that happens with the, I mean, that has not been looked at enough is actually the, the uh, fundamental clarity that the UK brought to the EU as the big liberal country, mm. uh, around which your country and my country and basically the, the northern countries then all be, were little satellites You'll see the immediate result of this uh, with uh, the absolutely vital need to liberalize or to have a fifth freedom, the free moon of data. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have the, the digital single market does yeah. not exist. So you, I mean, if you were in the U U.S., it would mean you couldn't buy an iTunes record in New Jersey and give it to someone living in New York. Mm. I mean, that's, we can't do that. I mean, the people don't understand how, how fragmented the European market is which uh, digitally, I mean, my standard line is easier to sell. We take a bottle of wine from the Algarve in Portugal and sell it north of the Arctic Circle in Finland than it is to buy an iTunes record across the border. We uh, only drink vodka. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I get the point. <laughs> you may only drink it. But in any case, the point is that uh, without the UK pushing that, you have very strong Luddite, protectionist um, uh, impulses in Europe. Uh, you know, the French came out with a proposal actually to uh, uh, 85, 95% of cloud services in the European Union are by, offered by American companies that they keep out the American companies. So what is that going to do to the quality of cloud services, which everyone uses, in Europe, that's just an example. Yeah. So that's the one point: is that it will, it will really sort of slow the European Union down when a major proponent of, of liberal economics is out and the slack is taken up by little ones, you know, us, and we all add up to about 20 million. The other thing that I think will happen, which I don't think people have looked at enough, is that. Uh, in fact, I think the pressure for a hard Brexit will be huge. Mm. Mo most of all from the countries that were, have always been traditionally kind of pro-British. Yeah. 
because, I mean, you saw this already with Denmark and you see it happening in the other sort of northern countries who have been traditionally pro-British and the ones the Brits keep counting on, is that with the rise of hardcore right-wing parties, anti-EU parties, um, it is not in the interest of any of the centrist and rural centrist governments in Europe to give the Brits too good a deal. Because if you get too good a deal, then you will only empower the hard anti-EU people saying, well, see, no, their deal wasn't so bad. So it is in the interest of the Europeans to give the UK a bad deal. Mm. And I think both of those will lead to uh, stagnation and acrimony and uh, yeah. bad relations and, and stagnation, m most importantly, for the economies of Europe, which will then become even further, fall further behind what's going on not only in the US, but with the sort of the new economy, but also China and the way things are going, India. Yeah. And so th there is a real danger of becoming Disneyland for, yeah. for Asia. Yeah. No, it, it, uh, both points well taken. The first one on the digital market, you know, I fully agree with you. And, and it is going to be much more difficult to make the case for a truly liberalized digital market uh, now that the UK leaves. This is, by the way, an interesting way. I mean, there's an Estonian and a Finn here. This was pretty much an initiative by Finland and Estonia in, in, in 2007 to try to push for the digital market. So to, to simplify things, that's the app kind of stuff. And we really didn't have one, you know. The US had completely taken over and, and, and liberalized and the rest of it. But this was something that we started to push for inside the European Union. It's become a big thing, but it, it was very incremental. You know, it was European Council after European Council of forcing it in there. And now the commissioner for digital affairs is actually Estonian, former prime minister of, of Estonia, correct? And, 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 and so we're trying to push for that. Now, uh, the other one is Brexit. Now, with Brexit, what you want to follow uh, is, is the three options we thought that you'd see on Brexit. Number one would be a soft Brexit. So you'd kind of negotiate something where they can be part of the internal market and yeah, nice transition periods and they wouldn't have to pay that much and, and sort of be a little bit like Norway, right? Uh, of course, the problem there is that, you know, Norway pays a lot more than we do net and they have nothing to say about legislation, but that's their problem, right? <laughs> Uh, but, but the bottom line was that the, the British government came out almost immediately said, no, we don't want to be a part of the single market, we don't want to have the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, and free movement and immigration is the key issue. So they were very hard on this. So then we excluded option number one, soft Brexit. And then you're left with two options. One is hard Brexit, and the other one is what I call cliff edge. Cliff edge basically means that there's no deal on the 1st of April 2019. And that means that see you in court. And that means market turbulence, it's messy, it's nasty, and the rest of it. We're all trying to avoid that. There was some talk from Prime Minister May earlier, better to have no deal than a bad deal. No, take the bad deal. And the problem for the UK is that Article 50, which initiates the Brexit negotiations, it has been written in the Lisbon Treaty in a form that no one would ever be so stupid as to use it. It, it makes a situation whereby if you're exiting, you have no negotiating cards, none whatsoever. All the EU has to do is two things, fix a date, that's me fixed now, and then fix a price. 
and everything else, the other side loses out. And here's where we get into trouble, and I, I think Thomas is right that not many countries want to see Britain getting a better deal or a good deal out of this. And the reason being is that then there might be some countries in line saying, well, I want to leave as well if they get such a good deal. The difference, of course, is that uh, after this, no one is going to, I hope, organize a referendum on EU membership in a similar kind of a fashion. Uh, and secondly, the alternative cost of, of going out is too high. I mean, look at a country like Finland. For us, EU membership is also a security issue because we are unfortunately not members of NATO. So you know, for us to now go out of the EU and stand there and look around, oh, 1,300 kilometers of border with Russia, how you all doing? And then you look to, <laughs> and then you sort of look to the left and think, yeah, well, you know, we just uh, voted ourselves out of the internal market and things, but it's really nice to be independent, <laughs> you know. So. Uh, the, 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 it's, it's not going to be nice. So you're going to have, you know, you get, you're going to have a lot of entertainment value as an international relations student uh, from Brexit, uh, unfortunately, for the next two years and beyond. Uh, I think here in the front first. Hi, my name is Valerie. Um, I'm a freshman here at Stanford, um, thinking about majoring in international relations. Go for it. Um, <laughs> So I have a, a question sort of from a student perspective. You were talking about how it's really important to start engaging in this fourth industrial revolution mm -hmm. um, because it's going to pay off in the long run. What do you think about global citizenship in terms of education and having students start to see themselves as citizens of the world, citizens of the world and not just citizens of their own country? Do you think that that could be a first step sort of in resolving, you know, the kind of isolationist practices and ideology that is occurring right now. Mm -hmm. And since, and I speak more towards the future because right now, like you said, we don't really know what's going to happen. We, we can't really predict, and so it's hard to make any steps yet because yeah. we just have to wait. Well, two, two points on that. The first one is that global citizenship, I would argue, is probably more the end state rather than the first step. I mean, that's something to, to strive for. And obviously the whole process of European integration, if you end up le reading, for instance, someone like David Mitrani in your IR classes, he would argue that um, education, studying and abroad, you know, uh, exchange of culture, languages, etc., and also exchange of trade, that will lead eventually to global citizenship. Well, in 2016, one could argue that, well, that took a little bit of a hit. Actually, we're not, you know, becoming global citizens as such. And if I may, sort of, uh, on a lighter note, say that I studied at the College of Europe in Bruges, uh, sort of an EU school, administration school. I remember going to Bruges, you know, with, with um, uh, prejudices about other nationalities, right? You know, the Finns are shy, right? So the, the, what's the difference between an extrovert and introvert Finn? You know, the, the introvert, when he talks to you, looks at his own feet, and the extrovert looks at your feet <laughs> kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, you know, all Germans have mustaches, and, and, you know, French only speak through three points, and, and, you know, Italians only eat spaghetti, you know, these kinds. So when I came out of the College of Europe in Bruges, where you're supposed to have these clothes, you know, my prejudices were just strengthened. <laughs> you know, everyone was like that. Uh, so, so, you know, there's an, there's, there's, an, there's an element that, you know, you can't get rid of yourself. And, and 
that's my first point. So, you know, cultural diversity, language, I'm, you know, it's always going to exist there. But then the question is, you know, when does patriotism become nationalism, you know? Uh, when does it become prejudice toward the other? When does it become racism or so? Now, my second point is that, that, you know, for centuries people used to say, oh, today's youth. Oh, you know, look what they're doing. They're listening to rock and roll. And, you know, putting suave in their hair, you know, this kind of stuff, right? You know, misbehaving. Well, you know, I would argue completely the opposite, you know. Today's youth has a world in its hand, which, for instance, my generation didn't. Yeah, I came from an international family. My, my dad is, still is, the chief scout of the National Hockey League uh, in Europe for the U.S. National Hockey League. So we traveled, you know, Canada, U.S. and the rest of it. I had a, you know, strong international background. But you guys, I mean, you have it all here. I mean, I used to, uh, you know, have to go to books to, to try to figure out words. And, and I, it, it's completely different. And you have it everything. So my argument is that today's youth are by definition going to be global citizens. You know, they don't, my kids, 15 or 13, as I mentioned, you know, they don't care about borders. You know, if they want to buy from Amazon, they buy from, well, I check that they don't buy too much, but, but you know, they, 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 for them, you know, borders are a necessary sort of evil, but you don't need it. So my hope is in you guys. And can I just throw in a last one on that, which is a little bit off topic, but I'll say it anyway. I'm a firm believer nowadays in, in reversed mentorship. You know, in the olden days, it was, you know, you had a tribe and the elders led it and the rest of it. And then we moved to political societies where, you know, all prime ministers and presidents were supposed to be at least 95 years old kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but, and, and also, you know, business leaders, they had to have the experience. In today's IT world, it, it's the opposite way around. You know, if, if, I, don't, if I don't understand uh, Twitter, Snapchat, Flickr, Instagram, etc., or if I don't understand what's going on in AI, I'm, you know, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to be out of it. So I'm going to be the guy who's looking around in the world like this. So, you know, global citizenship is the end state. Now we have the instruments to, to, to do it. But it's not going to happen during my lifetime, I'm afraid. Yep, go next. Yes, um, Sebastian Weissman, visiting from Europe. Um, you have been quite critical on Trump and uh, the whole Brexit issue. Um, but I think it's, I don't say that you're doing that, but it's too easy to blame the populist and the populist mm. voters. Can you kind of reflect on mistakes that the elite has made in the past yeah. that, lead, uh, that led to this situation? Yeah. I think you should actually look quite close. Look at Neil Ferguson, who I understand is, is here. Uh, he had a wonderful piece in a, in a slightly obscure Serbian journal called Horizon. And he defined five ingredients that usually are linked to populism. And quite often those five ingredients are something that the so-called elites uh, forget to take uh, into consideration or are basically uh, causing the populism themselves. Uh, number one uh, is sudden migratory moves. Now, could Europe have done something about that? I don't know. Should we have started to build walls in 2015 when we had an influx of um, immigrants or asylum seekers from uh, the Middle East and North Africa? I don't know. 
but the answer was and the response was too, too slow. Uh, the second thing that usually is in the air when populists emerge is growing uh, income gaps. And here's a classic. You know, I mentioned the, hey, it's your GDP, mate. I think one of the big problems is that there have been growing income gaps, if not only perception, but real as well. So when you have, you know, the 1% of the, the population having X amount of wealth and then 90% having much less, it, you need to do something about that because it's, it's an issue of, of fairness. Uh, the third thing is, 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 is perceived corruption or whatever you call it. You know, in democratic politics, the interesting thing is you actually have to be whiter than white. If not, you know, you get found out quite quickly. But when there is a feeling that, you know, Washington is corrupt, that's, for instance, what, what, what Trump played on. Or that Brussels is corrupt, that's what the Brexiteers prayed, prayed on, uh, played and preyed on, actually. Um, you know, you have to do something about it. You have to understand that it doesn't work in, in the same way. The fourth thing that happens is a financial crisis. And obviously, you know, you can pose the question, did we go too far in liberalizing uh, the regulation of financial markets? Someone might say yes. Well, the interesting thing is that now that we've really tightened up in Europe, the Trump administration is saying, well, let's, you know, start loosening up again on this side. So, so I don't know. The final thing you actually need is a demagogue. And the question is, can the current elites keep the demagogues down? Hitler was a demagogue. Uh, leaders of that age obviously didn't like him, but some of them played, the, played him down. So how far do you let them go? Um, final point on this, which is not Neil Ferguson, is that I think democratic politics has still elements of top-down in it. And my question is, how long can that last? And, and you know, when we start making decisions more bottom-up, then this could change. But I, I don't have a final solution. I mean, you know, when you are involved in political leadership. Um, quite often what happens is that you're so in the midst of it that you don't see the uh, trees from the woods or woods from the trees or however it goes. You get quite confused of what's going on. You're just dealing with one problem after another. So perhaps it's in the nature of the beast that it just has to be disrupted and, 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 and resurrect itself on occasion. Uh, I'll take one more from the front and then we'll take in the back. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, I'm Dongsu from TechS, uh, Finnish funding agency here in Silicon Valley. You mentioned about the importance of uh, technology and how politicians should be aware of that. Uh, what have you and your colleagues to talk about? How should we bring these two together, the tech corporation and, um, and the politicians? As we have seen, like how Facebook has, has taken the, not the role, but the, the stronghold of, of, of making uh, the impact but it's not happening until there's a, there's a breakthrough. So what are the steps we can do to, I know that you are aware of, but the other politicians should be more aware of what's happening in technology and, and, uh, and collaborate? Well, I guess the first one is just flow information so that politicians understand what it's all about. Here, I come back to my point of reverse mentorship, that people who are close to uh, political leaders and administrations should also make them aware of what is going on. You know, there are a lot of people that I've met, you know, they're not like Thomas Ilves. A lot of them don't know what artificial intelligence is. They understand what robotization is because they can see that it has an effect on, on the labor markets. Uh, so just the flow of information, I think, is a starting point. And the second one is to try to come up with joint legislation. 
Um, because I, I do think that these kinds of things need to be legislated at the end of the day. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm more of a free marketeer and the rest of it, but when we're talking about a thing like artificial intelligence, if we don't get it right, if we don't legislate it in the correct way, it can go horribly wrong. And I'm, I belong to the sort of tech optimist category, so that would be a good starting point. And then there were at least three questions in the back. We'll take the gentleman in red here first. Uh, you talked a bit about uh, who's going to fill the power vac or the, the values vacuum. Uh, I was wondering if you thought, if you think that America's role as leader, in the leader of the free world was dependent on its military strength, and uh, if so, how, uh, how will Germany and France cope with that considering that they are orders of magnitude weaker than the U.S. when it comes to military might. Mm. Uh, well, I, I don't think you necessarily need military power to be the leader of the free world. Um, far as military power is concerned, as I said, I think uh, you're going to see the U.S. having the lead in that and then you know, Russia being a good second. But as long as we stick to an important security alliance, military alliance such as NATO, uh, I think that makes our collective military leadership uh, at least in the right direction. But values, being a value leader doesn't in my mind require military. It, it, it requires action of sort and it, it, it requires a defense of certain liberal values. Uh, and that uh, vacuum I think can be quite easily filled and has already been filled by uh, Angela Merkel. But that requires also that you know, democratic elections go the right way. If, 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 if some of the European countries you know, end up voting either extreme right or extreme left leaders, then it's very difficult for Europe to take that lead in, 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 uh, in the free world. Uh, I think it's more dependent on personalities than, than on military. There was a gentleman right behind, and then we'll go to the left. You divided the uh, powers of the world. My name is Theodore Andromedus. I'm with the Schiller. Sorry, can you put it closer? Because uh, my name is Theodore Andromedus, and I'm with the Schiller Institute. Um, you may, you analyze the world, dividing into basically three factions: U.S., etc., military, uh, mm. political, and China, economic. Uh, and I think it's a little simple to do it that way. Simple-minded, frankly. Um, one of the most important conferences in the world is going to take place May 15th, 16th in China. Um, the One Belt, One Road conference. Mm -hmm. uh, as of now, there are 38 heads of state going and uh, 121 countries will be represented. So I think this plays a huge factor in how things will work out in the next days and weeks. Um, what do you think about that? I agree, and that's definitely the you know free trade and globalization part, and it's something that the Chinese have been pushing. I was in Beijing myself in the beginning of the year, and that was just when the train that had left, I forget the big city in China, had got all the all the way through Russia, etc., and ended up in London had taken place. So that was the sort of first moment of uh, one road, one belt, and it has not only sort of. Um, political symbolic significance, I think it has significance in terms of trade as well in the long run. So I'm certainly not downplaying it, quite the contrast, I'm playing it up in terms of free trade and globalization. This is an example of, of China taking 
a lead in this, in this field. But I would argue that China cannot take uh, a lead in, in terms of values uh, for, for rather obvious uh, reasons. Uh, it will not take the lead in the military, at least uh, not yet. And it's always been very reluctant in taking a lead in security as well. Obviously, its most powerful position is uh, in the UN Security Council, but um, its role there is probably much more calm than what we have seen from the US or, or from France or from, from UK or, or, or from Russia. So going back to Europe for a moment, um, if we're talking about the Europe that succeeds in time of crises and is often criticized as being over-regulatory or inactive in times where there are no crises, then the EU should be very active at the moment. Um, we recently saw the case opened against the Hungarian government for the CEU within the past couple of days. Would you say that this or other signs uh, are pointing towards that the EU is in fact moving towards greater action and a stronger uh, European bureaucracy? Or what other things can we look for to indicate how the EU is doing uh, over the next few months in particular? Well, the case, I mean, for those of you who haven't followed it, um, Prime Minister Orban of Hungary uh, has put forward a law uh, to close the Central uh, University of Europe, Central European Central University, European. Central Euro European University, which has actually been founded and funded by George uh, Soros. Uh, one could argue that there's a political motivation in it. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, uh, there was a public movement against this closing. Uh, I was involved in it. One of the uh, former prime ministers signing a letter uh, asking uh, the European Commission to take action and asking Prime Minister Orban not to do it. Um, not as a consequence of this letter, but due to public pressure and the rule-based system that the European Union has, it now has filed uh, uh, the, what is it, Article 7 procedure, which started, I think, yesterday. Um, and I think this is a portrayal, I would argue, of institutional strength of the European Union uh, and also of a system of checks and balances. Oddly enough, these rules, so the possibility for the European Commission to take action in these kinds of issues, were put into the treaties after Jörg Haider was elected as the leader of the Freedom Party and then subsequently got into government in Austria in the late 1990s. So now we're starting to see the European Commission use this. Uh, and I think it should, uh, and I think it could be even more forthright. There has been a strong dialogue uh, with the Polish government uh, linked to various uh, issues. Uh, and all, all of these issues are somehow linked to the values that we've been talking about today. So these kinds of roles, I think, we'll see the EU taking in the future. Then last the, question. Last question. Take the last question from Finland, so if, <laughs> if that's okay. And we can, you can ask me the question bilaterally afterwards. Okay, Hanna Olila, Department of Psychiatry. I'm a geneticist here. Um, fantastic talk. Um, I wanted to ask you about the public movements, uh, such as we've seen here, the Women's March and the Science Mar March for Science, and their role in shaping like the next steps. What's going to happen? I think it's the sign of times and the sign of modern politics. I think that uh, in today's democratic system of governance, there are very few people who stick to one party anymore. There are more people who choose the party or the person based on one single issue. 
It could be on science, it could be on nuclear power, it can be on gay rights, it could be on euthanasia. Uh, high emotion and important uh, issues. And I do think that these are the types of grassroots movements that are important. I'll give another example. When Brexit uh, took place and the vote took place, for the first time uh, in memory, we saw pro-European movement in Britain. You know? <laughs> So, you know, you're starting to see these kinds of things, and, and probably because of the flow of information, social media, etc., people are, in my mind, getting much more active than what they used to be. So people are not any more happy with pure representative democracy, just saying, okay, you know, I'll elect that chap for, next, for the next four years, and he can take the decisions for me. So you see a lot more of that. And as a politician, I also felt in you know, the constant pressure, I mean, you get, tens if not hundreds of emails daily on various issues, lobbying, etc., etc. Et and the lobbying doesn't come from lobby organizations, it comes from citizens, it comes from uh, NGOs or, or movements. So I, th I, I see their role as, 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 as being big. So for those of you who have bilateral questions, I think you can stick around for a little bit more time. Uh, but uh, as I listen to you, and, I, and especially on this last note, uh, the predictions of liberal internationalism, I think, are not dead yet uh, because we have people like you fighting for them. So thanks for being here. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.